So one of the uh, liturgies we have as a church, or really the rhythms of what we do here at Redeemer, is every few weeks I ask someone different to come up and to share their testimony. Morning, you reject me twice, I get you to share on Easter. Uh, but uh, it's, it's just such an encouraging time for my soul to just hear, uh, we hear from one another, testifying to how Jesus has come and rescued them. Uh, this morning, I've asked one of our elders to come and share. And so Dave Parker, we look forward to hearing from you. Good morning. Um, I was really thankful, actually, that Joel texted me like two days ago to see if I could share because I knew if I spoke at the eight o'clock service, I'd be here in time to get a seat for this service. So um, thanks, Joel. Um, yeah, I kind of thought about uh, what to say, and I prayed about it a lot over the last couple of days, and the Lord, um, under Jeff's admonition to kind of be still and listen, spoke to me clearly, and he said, wing it. Uh, so buckle up. Uh, uh, and I am excited um, to get to share with you this morning. Uh, the Lord has been so faithful in my life. Um, and much to Joel's chagrin, I don't have a super rock bottom story where he pulled me out of a ditch and saved me and nursed me back to health. Um, mine is more of a story of the Lord's faithfulness in my life. I grew up in the church um, in a loving household. I got baptized when I was young and then a little bit later and then probably a third time, and then who knows? I was Southern Baptist. We did baptisms early and often. Um, uh, but I look back on that time, and I am thankful. I, there's not a day that, um, in my life that I really don't remember trusting in Christ as my Savior. Um, that does not mean that I have a, a really glamorous story or that my story is not filled with pitfalls and sin. Um, but the overshadowing theme is that my life is filled with grace from the Lord, and he constantly brings me back to himself, even in the moments where I take the idols in my, in my life and put them on the throne of my heart. In his graciousness, he tears those down and dashes them to pieces and reasserts his lordship in my life. Um, yeah, so... Summer after my freshman year in college, um, the Lord really kind of challenged me with the question of, am I, am I enough? Is the Lord going to be enough for my life? And he did this in two, with two big sort of themes. The first one was, um, like any freshman at Samford, I was hoping to get married. Um, so he asked me, if you never get married, will I be enough? Um, the Lord asked Peter to get out of the boat and walk on water, and that's kind of the way the Lord's worked in my life, and some steps I've taken are, are similar. So my getting out of the boat in that moment was, as you may assume, I kissed dating goodbye um, for a year, and then three weeks later met who is now my wife, um, and we've been married 20 years. That's a really great story of the Lord's fulfillment and my trusting in him in that area of my life. That's not everyone's story. The second half of that question about will he be enough is, is where do I place my trust? Now, I place my eternal trust in Christ, and that's never been a question for me. I know when I leave this earth, I will be with him in heaven, and all my worries and all my fears will be gone. But what about tomorrow? Or what about next week or next month? 
that's really where my struggle lies. And that manifests itself through just this hope of financial security. The Lord asked me, he said, you never have that that money that's talked about in Matthew chapter 6. You can't serve God and mammon, that idea of financial security. Will, will I be enough for you? And in my act of Peter stepping out of the boat, I wanted to trust the Lord in this. So after graduating from college, I went to work for a summer camp to ensure <laughs> that I didn't have any money. Um, in fact, our first fight as a married couple was in the Walmart of a small uh, Northern California town where my wife asked me um, if we could buy a 95 cent cat toy for our cat. And I said, I don't think we can afford it. Um, and you got to understand, this was before you could check your bank balance on your phone. Um, I had to go back to our house, well, house, uh, our crawl space where we lived, and reconcile my bank account. And sure enough, we had 83 cents in our account. But I was right. Uh, uh, and so this is what, you know, this is, Part of my story is this, the Lord wanting me to trust him in this area of my life. Some triumphs, a lot of failures. In fact, as I was thinking about why Joel would have me come and speak um, or give my testimony as we study David, all I can figure is that David got it right a couple of times and wrong a lot. Uh, and that's my story, and my name is also David. So... Um, there are triumphs, though. The Lord has called me, and he's been faithful. Um, I just want to share some of those with you for a sense of encouragement. Um, I don't think I would believe them if they had not happened to me. Um, in an effort to better uh, myself financially, I decided a step up would to become a part-time private school teacher, um, which is also a very lucrative career for any of you, those of you who are looking to, uh, for jobs. Um, and we were sitting around the table one night. We had we now have five children, but at that time, I think we had one or two. I don't know. It kind of gets blurry. There's a lot of them. Um, and Dorothy looks at me, and she says, hey, uh, we don't have enough money to make our budget this month. And, y'all, we were like hardcore Dave Ramsey. We had envelopes. We had the wallet. I mean, we were doing it all. And we were doing what we thought the Lord had called us to do. I mean, as a matter of fact, we were. like We had prayed about this decision, this job that I would take. And in a moment of clarity, in a moment of stepping out of the boat, <clears throat> I just looked at my wife, Dorothy, and I said, hey, let's just pray about this, because the Lord has promised not to leave us or forsake us. And so we prayed about it. We told the Lord that we trusted him for all the things that we needed and that we believed that he would provide. We went for a walk around our neighborhood, and when I got back to our house, I opened the mailbox, and in it was an envelope from our insurance company. Now, I'm not aware that insurance companies give you money back very often, uh, but in this case, uh, we received a dividend. And within the dollar of what we needed to cover our budget, that check was for that exact amount. Um, there's a lot of theological stuff in there that I don't quite understand. Like, had I not prayed, had that, would that not have happened? Uh, you know, what's the Lord trying to teach me in this? And I, I came to the conclusion... Uh, that that check, you know, it had been written before the need ever was realized, like we ever came to the realization that we needed that money. 
Um, in fact, I'm pretty sure that check had been written at the foundation of time. So that in that moment, when the Lord asked us in faith to step out and trust him, he could show up in this way that was real and concrete and, and lay a foundation of trust. There's a lot more stories uh, in my life where I've really messed it up, where I've been faced with a similar situation and I've wept in my, in my car. I came home from a job. I also started my own business because as if working for a school or a summer camp wasn't hard enough, starting your own business, I mean, I'm just drilling down, right? I'm just trying to find ways for the Lord to show up in my life. Um, yeah, and I, I didn't have enough money to pay my mortgage, and I had a call back on a job, and I had to go work for free the day after Thanksgiving. And I got home, and I just cried. I, I couldn't get out of the car. I was so scared. <clears throat> and the Lord reminded me, hey, remember that time that there was that check? You can trust me. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Doesn't mean it's going to be glamorous. Doesn't mean you're always going to get it right. But he's always going to be there. He's always going to take care of you. I think there's things like that in all of our lives as believers. For me, it was, am I going to get married? Where am I hoping for um, security? For you, it may be something else. Um, there's a great Great image, and I'll leave you with this. Um, it's from C.S. Lewis, who we can all agree is the greatest thing to come out of England in the mid-19th century, much to Joel, Joel Chagrin. Um, it's not Tolkien. Um, there's a scene in this book, The Silver Chair. It's one of the lesser-read books of the Chronicles of Narnia, or lesser-quoted. There's a scene where a girl is faced with this dying sense of thirst, and between her and the stream is is a lion. It's a big, scary lion. For me, it's a big, scary sense of security. But on the other side of that lion is the only source of satisfaction that we can ever have. It's a stream that will not run dry. It will quench your thirst forever. <clears throat> but you got to go through the lion to get there. Now, this girl doesn't know that the lion is Aslan and that he's good, but he's not tame. And so she asks the question, are you going to eat me? And he says, basically, I've eaten people before. And she goes, well, I guess I'll go to another stream. And he says to her, there's no other stream. I mean, there are other streams, but there's, no, there's really no other stream that's going to satisfy you. And that's what the Lord asks of us, to step out and to trust him. He doesn't promise that it will be easy, that it will always be fun, but he does promise that he's good and that he will always be with us. Thanks. Thank you, David. And I would like to remind you that Tolkien led C.S. Lewis to the Lord. <laughs> if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 4.
We'll be looking at chapters 4 and 5. So we are studying uh, the gospel and the life of David by not talking about David yet. We will get there. Uh, But the first half of 1 Samuel really is laying the foundation for David's arrival. Uh, Here in the text that we're about to read, uh, we're going to read about a battle, how the Ark of the Covenant was taken, how Israel really needs someone to come and to be their rescuer. They need a savior. They need someone after God's own heart to come in the name of the Lord and to fight their battles for them. So it sets the stage for David, who will come later. Uh, But these chapters don't just act as a a precursor for his life. Um, Really, it's pretty revealing about who we are and the things that we trust in as well. Um, And so it's helping to prepare our hearts for Christ. Um, And I have found that these two chapters to be particularly convicting to me over the last couple of weeks. Uh, So 1 Samuel chapter 4, first 11 verses. And the word of the Lord came to all Israel. And Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in a line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. They were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they heard that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can rescue us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter. For 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon, And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut on the threshold. 
Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priest of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and his territory. This is the word of the Lord. You pray with me. Our Father, our simple prayer is this. Would you show us who we are? And would you show us who you are? And I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So at this point in Israel's history, they're not yet a kingdom. They're this loose confederation of states. The Philistines were a constant thorn in their side. And so the story begins with Israel going off to battle against those pagan Philistines. And you would suppose that uh, since Israel is God's chosen people, after all, that this, this battle, it would just be a rout. It should be kind of like, you know, Texas A&M playing Appalachian State. Or if Craig's here, Notre Dame playing Marshall. Uh, that's the last football references I will ever give, uh, at least for a year or so. The point is this. You are expecting a route. And it actually was a route. It just wasn't the route that you were expecting. Israel gets routed, and Israel loses 4,000 men, and they can't believe this happened. How could this happen? I mean, they are God's chosen people. They're the ones who've got the Ten Commandments. They're the good guys. And as they're wondering what happened, uh, one guy, he says, whoa, 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 oh my gosh, guys, oh my gosh, we forgot the ark. That's what happened. I mean, we went into battle without the ark. We just got to get the ark, and then everything will be good. And, and so that's their solution for, uh, for why they lost. Uh, they remember Raiders of the Lost Ark, my favorite childhood movie. And if you remember, any army that carries the Ark of the Covenant before them is invincible. And so that's what they're thinking. We need the ark. It will be invincible. And so they go, and they bring the ark, and they get slaughtered. Thirty thousand of their soldiers die and they're just wondering why how Israel getting conquered here is their lowest point as a nation they're literally hanging on by a thread as God's people they have just been utterly defeated and they've lost the symbol of their faith the ark is now sitting in a pagan temple So you see God's promise to Abraham, which was a thousand years earlier, it's hanging on by a thread. So what happened? I mean, what did Israel do wrong? Something that we do wrong all the time. They place their faith in the wrong thing. They trusted in a symbol of God, but they did not actually trust in God. After the Israelites got routed the first time, they asked a question. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? That's a really good question. 
It's the right question to ask after you've been routed. It shows theological understanding. They understand that victory rises and falls with the Lord. And so the reason they lost, what well, has to be because the Lord was against them. So why was God against them? Good question. Notice they don't take any time afterwards to actually listen to what God has to say. They ask a question, but they do not spend one moment in prayer. They do not spend one moment in contemplation about why God would allow this to happen to them. They do not ask God if they've done anything wrong. They do not ask God if they violated any of those Ten Commandments that was just taken off, uh, taken to the pagan temple. They don't seek any areas in their lives where perhaps they might need to repent. As a matter of fact, they don't even ask the Lord this question. They ask it to one another. Why has the Lord allowed this to happen? Why has he defeated us? But they don't seek God at all. Have any of you seen that uh, bumper sticker that says, uh, my kids treat me like I'm God? Have you all seen that? It's a great bumper. Any parent can relate to this. You have to read the second part, though. My kids treat me like I'm God. They only talk to me when they need something. Uh, the Israelites, you know, they, they, they certainly felt like they were God's children. So would they treat God like so many children do? You know, we pray to God like, all, like this all the time. God, it's been a while. I'm Joel. Just, I know it's been a long time. If you could just help me out with this one little situation here. Perhaps you pray, God, once again, it's, it's, it's been a long time, but I've got a test tomorrow I didn't study for. If maybe you could just kind of help me out this one time. God, it's been a while, but if you could maybe just give me one date. That's all I want is just one date. If you could just do this one thing for me. We so often pray like this. We, we come to God in that moment of need. You would expect Israel to do this, but they don't. They don't seek God, but what they do do is get really religious. They just need some of that old-time religion. They need to bring that back. Bring back the old symbol of God's presence. Bring back the Ark of the Covenant that was given to them 400 years earlier. They can think back to that old-time religion. They've heard the stories of what the Ark has done. They've heard the stories of the walls of Jericho and how the, the Ark went there and circled around that city and the walls of Jericho came crumbling down. They've heard the stories about how the Ark went forward and battled and conquered all the enemies. They used to be great. And when they brought the ark out, well, that's got to be what makes them great again. So they bring the ark out. You know, they, they, they slap the Make Israel Great Again bumper sticker on it. So that's what they want. They want to go back to that time. Remember when, when God used to be on our side? But instead of seeking God, they just claimed the old symbols and they pulled them forward. That's what religion does. Religion is what happens when one tries to harness God's power for their own advantage. 
But there's no relationship. There's no worship. There's no adoration. Instead of adoration, there's only manipulation. Religion tries to manipulate God to doing what you want God to do. And so they dig up this old symbol of God and they put it forward like a rabbit's foot. They bring out, you know, their old family Bibles, you know, kind of dust them off. Put the, the cross around their neck. Maybe put a fish on their car. They even, you know, reprogram the radio stations, put K-Love on there. You know, they are, they're going all in. But are they really going to God? Religion is what happens when one tries to harness God's power to his or her own advantage. Religion clings to symbols, but doesn't cling to God. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, make no mistake, it was a, it was a powerful symbol. A powerful symbol of God's presence among his people, but it was still just a symbol. It wasn't actually God himself. Symbols can be powerful. Uh, this, this ring that I'm wearing, it's my wedding ring. Uh, it is a symbol of my marriage with Lauren. It's a powerful symbol to me. It's my fourth, I think, wedding ring. Uh, my first one was a gold one. I lost it mud wrestling on a mission trip. So we got another gold one. I lost it. I don't know where. Uh, and so Lauren's like, now we're getting a sterling silver one. Uh, so then we got a sterling silver one, and, uh, and then, you know, you get older, and your, your hands, and your, your, they just get bigger, and it wouldn't fit anymore. Now I've got, like, the, the sweatband of, of wedding rings, the silicone band. It's basically a little fidgy toy, but I love it because it's a powerful symbol to me of our marriage, but it's not my wife. So if you were to see me at uh, Lauren and I, our favorite date spot, which is Chez Fon Fon, to get the Chez Fon Fon burger there, uh, if you see me there and you see my wedding ring across the table from me and I'm talking to it, I'm like, you look wonderful this evening. Could we get her another drink? And she'd also like the burger. Do you want to split something? This, if you saw me doing that, you're concerned. I mean, you're, you're, you're probably calling 911 or, or more likely you're getting out your phone just to take pictures and post it. You know, hashtag, I've got a crazy pastor. Hashtag, he's Gollum, calling him my precious, you know. You're concerned and you should be. It's a ridiculous idea. Who would ever mistake a symbol for the real thing? Hmm. Any of you ever feel defeated? Your soul's weary, tired. You're emotionally, spiritually defeated. It's like every day's a battle, and you're just being routed. You don't have any idea why. I mean, after all, you're doing the right things. You know, you're clinging to the right things. You're going to church regularly. I mean, all of you are here. You know, you're going through that Bible reading plan, perhaps in a Bible study. But yet, 
You're just tired, weary. So you keep doing more, more of those Christian things. When the national census came out, you marked Christianity. Matter of fact, you've been marking a whole lot of Christian boxes. You've been checking them off. I grew up in a small Southern Baptist church, and they gave the offering envelopes, literally had the boxes you could check off. Any of y'all have those growing up? And so you could, uh, you know, um, have you read your Bible every day? Literally a box. Check. Have you prayed every day? Check. Are you, uh, have you tithed? You know, check. Uh, have you shared your faith or shared the gospel this week? Like, some people saw me say a blessing over my Chick-fil-A. Like, check. You know, that's got to count. But like, you're literally going through and you're checking the boxes, yet you feel so defeated. It's not helping. Where is God in all this? Why am I defeated? And perhaps, just perhaps for some of you, the reason is at some point along the road, you began placing your faith in symbols of Christianity, but not in Christ. Which is understandable because those symbols used to have such power for you. But the only reason they had power is because they were attached to Jesus. It was a tool that he was using in your life to draw you closer to him. But somewhere, perhaps along the way, maybe a divorce began to happen. Can I tell you that's been true at times in my life? And I know you're thinking, you're a pastor. Exactly. I literally swim in the symbols of Christianity every single day. It's the air I breathe. For crying out loud, I am a symbol of Christianity as a pastor. And so I can go and I can like, okay, you know, every, every Sunday I'm, I'm preaching a sermon, then I'm leading Bible studies, and then I'm giving godly counsel to people. I'm having people into my home. I'm going to elder meeting. I'm going to these committee meetings. I'm going to all of these things. I'm checking all of these boxes. And then I get so tired. And those are like a warning sign to me. Why, why is your soul tired? It's because I'm checking the boxes. I'm clinging to the symbols, but somehow that's begun to gradually replace my relationship with Christ. Perhaps, perhaps that could be some of you. Any of you ever experienced that? Elders, pastors, I'm talking to you. Have you begun to experience that? Deacons, home group leaders, people in your house every single week. I'm not questioning if you're serving. I'm not questioning if you're checking all the right boxes. But are you just exhausted? Perhaps somewhere along the way there's been a shift. Gradual. And you've been trusting in these things instead of trusting in Christ. The people of Israel asked the right question. Why has the Lord defeated us today? But they never paused to listen to an answer. They never repented of their sins. They never renewed their faith and went back to their first love. 
And if your soul is weary and defeated, don't make the same mistake. Take pause. Listen, Lord, why? Is there something in my life that needs to change? Have I forsaken my first love? Listen to him. Cling to him. And and Paul's last letter he ever writes in the New Testament is 2 Timothy. And he writes Timothy, and he's writing about people in the church, and he's warning Timothy about about all these people sitting in the pews, and they're doing all these terrible things. There's all this internal sin in their life that they're kind of keeping hidden because outwardly they look great. And after he gives this laundry list of sins, he sums it all up. He says, these people, they have the appearance of godliness, but they have denied its power. They have the appearance of godliness. People in the church, the appearance. But somehow the power of the gospel has just kind of left them. They go to church, they sing, they serve, they perhaps even teach. They appear godly. But where's the work of the Holy Spirit in their life? It's a sobering, sobering warning. So church, let me ask you again, how is your soul? Are you clinging to Jesus? Can you hear him calling you? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Is he a balm for your soul? Or are you just burning out? Back to the story. The people, when they bring out the ark, at first it seems great. I mean, verse 5 says they bring out the ark. Israel's giving a mighty shout. They're getting all excited. I mean, they're singing some Lauren Daigle, some Chris Tomlin. Here's like, how great is our God? I mean, it's like a modern worship service. It really is. The priests are there. They're loud. The ark's before them. They've got the, the symbols of their faith, and they're ready to do war. Then they just get routed, defeated again. Lowest point in their history. It's telling to me that after the ark is taken, they do nothing. Kind of like when people leave the church and are like, well, I didn't have any power when I was there. Didn't really change my life when I was there. Why should I go back? The ark leaves and they do nothing. They don't muster people together and think, we got to go and bring that thing back. They don't even like pull together money and think, man, perhaps if we offered a ransom, we could buy it back. They literally do nothing. They are utterly defeated. Israel's hanging on by a thread. So what does God do here? I mean, I don't know about you, but if I'm God at this point, it's abort. <laughs> I mean, if you, you, know, you picture God up there, you know, he's got the flood button he could hit. You know, maybe the, the hurricane or earthquake. And I would be like, hit them all. I mean, we have had a thousand years of this since Abraham. Hitting them all. It's time to abort. But God doesn't give up on them. I mean, that is the, the good, good news in this story. There is gospel news in the story for the weary soul. Notice when Israel is full of sin, when they are defeated, when they are hanging on by a thread, the Lord God himself goes off to battle for them. He fights for them. He goes and he reminds them of who he is. The first thing I want you to notice is that although Israel sins, it's the Lord who sent out into exile. 
the Lord represented in the ark, he's the one who, who was sent out into exile. And the Philistines, they take that ark and they place them in their temple of their god, Dagon. They're like, we'll add you to the gods. I mean, they're pluralist. But of course, since you're the defeated god, you got to, you know, your second fiddle to Dagon here. But God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. You might think he is dead. He is not. The next day, they wake up and Dagon is lying prostrate before the ark of Yahweh. It's like, that's strange. We should probably fix that. <laughs> so they, you know, they put Dagon back upright. The next morning, they get up. Dagon is prostrate before the ark of Yahweh again, but this time his hands are cut off and his head is cut off. And I love that image. The Lord seems utterly defeated when the sun goes down. But in the morning, he is the risen Lord victorious, defeating his enemies. The story points us towards another victory that we're going to soon get to in 1 Samuel of when David takes on Goliath. When David takes on Goliath, he remembers this story. Absolutely, he remembers this story. He's going on to take on the power of Philistine, the Philistines and Goliath. And he says, hey, you come to me with a sword and javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord. And we remember what he did last time. And this day, I will cut your head off. David remembers that the battle belongs to the Lord, and it's not in his effort. And then, of course, this story ultimately points us to Jesus. Jesus who came when we were so weary. Defeat after defeat of our own demise. Our own sin has brought us to that lowly spot. And Jesus comes to us and he allows himself to be captured by his enemies. So he could go off and fight our battles for us. And Jesus goes, and sun goes down, and they think he is defeated, but he is not. He rises victorious, and he conquers our biggest enemies of all, sin and death. And now Jesus offers, once again, the call. Are you weary? Would you come to me? Come to me for life. It's a call to a beautiful and glorious life. A life of forgiveness, a life of joy. Would you come to Jesus? Or will you hold on to the appearance of godliness and deny its power? Pray with me. Lord Jesus, would you be so kind to us in this moment through your spirit? to perhaps expose some areas in our life where we have forgotten our first love. Expose our idolatry that has taken the form of symbols of, of Christianity, which we've clung to dearly. But Lord, we've let go of you. Would you be so kind to show that to us? And would you call us to yourself because a call to you is a call to beauty and to glory and to life. 
May those who are weary find their rest in you in this, this morning. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.